Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for being here for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to talk about COVID-19 on the show today, try to answer a lot of the questions that you are asking us, which we refer back to the public health experts who will be part of our panel today. Um, But, you know, I I was reflecting on the date. If I had to pick a date when, for me, I thought that the coronavirus transformed who we are as a people— it would be probably March 16th, 2020. That was a Monday um, in which almost everything, we'd been hearing about coronavirus, we knew it was an escalating problem, but for whatever reason, that seemed to be the date that companies across the country and individuals suddenly realized our lives are changing. We have to stay home. We have to lock down. I remember racing around on the day before that, Sunday, running to Costco, running to the supermarket, trying to stock up on as many supplies as I possibly could uh, before being locked down. And in my case, personally at least, and for the Political Rewind team, Monday, March 16th, 2020, marked the first day that we did the show, at least I did the show, remotely. And for 18 months, I've been doing it that way ever since, as have most of our panelists. Um, What's astonishing about that date is to think that 18 months later, we are still dominated by COVID. It is still the driving force in how we live every day. But because it's an evolving disease that we're only understanding day by day, the research community, the, the medical community, we have heard varying pieces of information that change from time to time and seem to confuse us as to what we need to take seriously about COVID-19. And that's the reason I was really excited that the two panelists who are joining Greg Bluestein and me today to talk are with us. First, Greg Bluestein. Of course, it's Wednesday, the day that you join me for the show. Uh, today's not going to be so much about the politics of COVID, but I do have to start by saying you have a pretty tough piece on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution this morning about how the politics of the virus have been dealt with by the current uh, administration. Yeah, we, we write about how the governor's doing more on the back end to try to help hospitals rather than on the front end to actually mitigate the spread of the disease. Which is, which is one of the biggest uh, critiques of the governor from public health experts and from Democrats. Well, um, I, I would really recommend that people uh, may want to read that story. As I say, we're going to talk more about the public health aspects of COVID today because there are so many questions that people have out there. Um, we're joined uh, by Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who um, is the executive associate dean of the Emory School of Medicine. He's a distinguished professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Emory School of Medicine. He's still an online doctor working at Grady Hospital. And Carlos, we always are happy to have you with us. Thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to join you. So uh, as I introduce you, I do want to tell our listeners that you are being honored um, next week 
And it's a really wonderful honor, MAP International, one of the largest um, NGOs, public health NGOs in the Southeast, is presenting their Bill Fagey Global Health Awards. And you are one of three people being honored. You're in great company. Dr. Anthony Fauci is one of the honorees. And so is Caitlin uh, Carrico, who is one of the, I guess, of the leading researcher in terms of dealing with the NR, with dealing with the, the, the vaccine that we're now using, right? Right. She was one of the brains behind the development of the mRNA technology that is critical in the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. Well, congratulations. Um, the Bill Fagey Award is a real honor. Um, Bill is one of the favorite guests on this show, and people know how much we think of him. So uh, we're very happy for you to get this award. You know, Bill is, is, is an icon in public health. He is. I, I tell people that Bill is uh, the pope of public health. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Um, Dr. Amber Schmidtke is with us as well. Professor Schmidtke is a microbiologist, is a public health educator, teaches at St. Mary's University. And Amber, I think one of the most important ways to introduce you is to say that when data about what's happening with the virus has not been um, as ubiquitous as it, we need it to be from our public health authorities, you picked up, stepped into the gap, and you have done an extraordinary job with the COVID digest in which you crunch all the numbers and give us a very clear picture of where the virus stands today. So thank you for being here. You're most welcome, and thank you very much for that compliment. Um, so let's start, though. Um, right before the show, uh, uh, Greg, Carlos, you and I talked about the fact that public health uh, really hits home when we personalize it. And you have a personal story right now in your life. Tell us about it. Yeah. So yesterday I got that phone call that I think I've been worried about getting for months, um, that one of my family members was a close contact of a confirmed case. And it's my 10-year-old who is too young to be vaccinated. Um, his exposure was at school. And so, you know, I've obviously been very deep in the data and communicating about risk assessments and um, the risk spectrum and how to protect ourselves. But I found myself in that position of, oh, my goodness, what do we do now? You know, and not just is he going to get sick? Is he going to be one of those unfortunate few children that do have a really serious case of COVID-19? Um, but also, you know, how do we manage a two working parent household and all of the obligations that we need to meet? Um, so that was, you know, I know I've been talking through this with a lot of parents who are going through this. And unfortunately, it came home to me. We've tested him at home. He's negative so far. So that's good. Um, and hopefully that remains the case. Is he staying at home or is he going back to class? What's happened to the class that he's in? Oh, yeah. His entire class was sent home um, and they've been sent home for 14 days. Um, and in, okay. we live in the state of Kansas. And one thing that's really interesting mm -hmm. is that the Kansas state legislature passed a law last year. Um, they're filled with sort of an anti-science uh, COVID denier faction um, that the schools cannot pivot to virtual learning. So he is spending 14 yeah. days completely uneducated um, and not receiving any of the supports that normally he would receive. So we're, we're a bit... We don't um, have that... Oh, I was Go just going to say, we're, we're just a bit, uh, you know, floundering right now trying to figure out how we're going to do this with the understanding that he's going to go back to school, of course, and we could go right back into this scenario again until he's vaccinated. 
Um, fortunately, we don't have quite that kind of uh, regulation in place here in Georgia. Uh, Carlos, I don't know if you've had a chance to see this because the news broke uh, just about an hour before we went on the air. Pfizer announced that it is now going to seek approval uh, for vaccinations for children as young as six months old and up. If, if in fact, they pursue that path, um, and as I said, this news is brand new, but just in a general way, Carlos, if they're able to get approval to start vaccinating children that young and beyond, it would make an enormous difference, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. It will make enormous difference. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, I heard about this announcement yesterday because actually it was at the at the Morgan Stanley uh, conference that they made the announcement. And uh, it, to me, it's sort of interesting how we're learning about this announcement when, when companies speak to to you know to investors in financial places and not when they speak to the FDA and and, and other a- agencies you know this Friday this the FDA advisory committee on vaccines the the, the Burpack is meeting to discuss the the, the use for boosters uh, that Pfizer has applied for so um, I mean I, I'm again I'm waiting to look at the data I'm waiting to see the the, the FDA meeting on Friday those those meetings are transparent they're open to the public and uh, and we need to we need to let the there's a process in this country there's a process in in which how we approve things and I I'm, I believe that we need to follow the process it goes to the FDA the FDA reviews it it goes to the CDC advisory committee they review it again they make a recommendation the recommendation goes to the CDC director who then enacts it we need to let the process happen we don't need either the companies tell us what to do we don't need the government tell us what to do I mean you know we don't need President Biden saying. On, December, on September 20th, everybody's going to have access. I'm sorry, but that's not his role. There's a process here, and we need to let the process take place. I mean, there is political fighting. The White House apparently is at odds with FDA uh, over exactly what you're uh, talking about. Uh, um, Greg Bluestein, let me bring you into this conversation. Your front page today is full of COVID news, your story. Uh, but there's also a story. Uh, the headline is uh, Cases Among Kids Up Sevenfold in Metro Atlanta. And the paper points out that only 27% of uh, Georgians from 12 to 17 are fully vaccinated. So what was once a, a disease of older people is now coming. We know this already, uh, but confirmation that it's young people who are now uh, suffering. Yeah, there's been more than 100 uh, school outbreaks in this calendar year. Um, there's there's been victims in terms of teachers. Um, dozens of teachers have have and, and other school staffers have died uh, in the past year, and it's the single biggest source of an outbreak right now in terms of new cases among among school children. And that was kind of I wanted to follow up on on the topic we were just talking about to, to Dr. Schmidtke. Um, most of my I have two kids under 12, and most of my friend group has kids that age. Let's fast forward and hope and say that you know the the vaccine is authorized. Uh, what advice do you do you and and Professor Dario have for parents when it comes to evaluating whether or not to get their children once it's authorized, um, if it if it is authorized to get their children those vaccines? Well, I think the first thing to do is talk to your pediatrician if you have concerns. Um, and what I will say from personal experience is I would never recommend a vaccine to somebody that I wouldn't be willing to brace to get for my own children. And for my 12-year-old, we vaccinated him on his 12th birthday. 
um, and we were out of town. So it was that important to us to go ahead and get that done. Um, three weeks later, we were also out of town and we had to sort of triangulate where are the doses, where is the Pfizer dose in particular, because that's the only one he was eligible for. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, it's going to be really important to get that done um, because we want schools to remain open. We want that to be a, a continued place because for them, because we know that's the best environment for them to learn. Um, but the way we keep schools open is by limiting disease transmission. And we can do that through vaccination, but also our multi-layered approach with um, masking, social distancing, improved ventilation, all of those things combined. All right. Let me let me ask both you first, Amber, because it's from your reporting. And then, Carlos, please jump in on this. Um, your most recent COVID digest, which was dated September 10th, you lead with this, the possible, and you say possible good news we observed last week for Georgia COVID-19 data is holding. This week, we can see that total cases have declined by 21%. New COVID-19 hospital admissions have declined by 16%. Uh, deaths rose by 1.7%. But you caution us that this was from the Labor Day holiday week, and, and the numbers may not reflect a full look at what a week would be. So starting with you and then, and then uh, Carlos, please tell us, have we seen a peak in the Delta variant or is this an anomaly? What do we think is happening here? I think this is, uh, it's potentially very good news. And I think that so far, even as the week has progressed, um, that, that situation appears to be holding. Um, you know, normally I would be very concerned about um, the, the holiday weekend impacting especially case counts. Um, but in this surge and in surges past, we've seen that cases and hospitalizations trend together. Um, so the fact that not only are cases peaking and starting to reduce, but so are hospitalizations, um, that gives me more reason to believe that it's real. Um, the other thing is that the timeline matches exactly with what we've seen in other states. We saw nine weeks of surge um, for the state of Georgia, and that's consistent with what Missouri saw, which, which is where Delta really took hold first in the United States. Carlos, how does this happen? I mean, it's not as if we've had an enormous increase in the number of people who are getting vaccinated. Um, masking regulations are still hit or miss in various places. Is, is this just the behavior of the virus? Why does it peak and then drop off, peak again? Help us understand that, if you can, please. Well, you know, I think this is sort of the combination of the interaction with, of the virus with, with, the, with behavior, right, with, with humans. I think that, uh, well, first of all, I will start by saying that even though some people have gotten vaccinated, if you get vaccinated today, that's not going to help you to prevent Delta. And I think part of the problem that we're seeing is the other day, for example, I was talking to somebody and say, well, you know, I have a relative who's, who's, who got vaccinated and he's in the hospital on a ventilator. I said, yeah, when was your relative vaccinated? And it turns out the person was vaccinated two days before they were admitted to the hospital. Well, you know, that's an unvaccinated person. That's not really somebody who's been vaccinated. But vaccines, you're really not protected against Delta until you completed your two you know, doses and you let two weeks pass. So if you start vaccinating today, it's going to be in six weeks that you're protected. So you're getting vaccinated today to protect you into the future. The, uh, in every peak we've seen, what you see is, you know, right now this peak is particularly interesting because you're seeing, first of all, the, the disease run rapidly through unvaccinated populations. This is a virus that rapidly goes through unvaccinated population, populations and essentially starts exhausting the, uh, the, the, the number of people who are susceptible, right? And at some point in time, 
exhausted people who are susceptible, but also it, it, you know, people start changing behavior. People say, well, I'm not going to go to restaurants. I'm not going to do this. So a, a combination of behavior plus exhaustion of the susceptible pool leads to then to the, to the, to the pandemic, to the number of, of new infections going down. Greg, jump in, and then I know, Amber, you want to add something. Yeah, I mean, Dr. DeLeo, do you see the Biden vaccine mandates um, as a potential to, to significantly increase and uh, not just the vaccinated population, but, but, but deter future waves? Or is, this, is another wave a fact of life because we're heading towards colder weather and more people will be masked indoors? So let me just say that I, I am concerned that the number, the, the 80 million or so Americans who are not yet vaccinated are unlikely to going to get vaccinated. Uh, the other day, I, I said that yesterday, I spent a lot of time with a group of individuals who are not vaccinated and talking to them. And, you know, it's pretty clear that it's not lack of information, but actually excessive misinformation that is preventing them from getting the vaccine. And changing that, it's going to be very hard. So the point is, uh, we have to do something different. And I think uh, mandates are going to make a difference because there's some people who will get vaccinated when they have to do something. It's also going to be things like, you know, New York and other places are doing when when you have to show your vaccine record to go to a restaurant or to go to an event like Music Midtown. Some people are going to get vaccinated because they want to do that. So limiting what you can do as unvaccinated, I think, is going to drive some people to get vaccinated. I'll just add that, you know, tagging on to what Carlos said earlier about how we've maybe exhausted the number of people that are contributing to disease during these surges and peaks is we've seen this before, and it didn't mean that we were protected from the next wave. And so what I think that we're seeing is localized exhaustion of those susceptible people. Um, and so I think I would not be uh, super confident in saying that we're never going to see another surge in Georgia, especially as our vaccination rates remain as low as they are. And then the other point that, that Greg brought up with, with Carlos is um, the idea that, you know, 80 million people are unvaccinated. And, and I know Dr. Real, Del Rio said, I don't think they're going to get vaccinated, but I would remind people that a significant chunk of those people are children. Um, and there will be a lot of parents that rush out to get this done because not only do they want their kids in school and they want their kids to be safe, but for working parents, it's a fact of life that their kids need to be in school for them to put food on the table. Um, so I would not be surprised if we see a significant movement um, within that unvaccinated population, but perhaps not among the adults. And I so think that's I want critical, to talk. That's a critical yeah, go ahead. component. Go. We need to really emphasize that in order to open the economy, in order for people to truly go back to work, having schools open is a critical component. And I think we need to emphasize that, that, that one of the reasons to keep our schools open and keep our schools safe by vaccinating the adults, everybody over 12 in schools, by masking, et cetera, is actually to allow adults to go to work. Greg, the uh, uh, State Board of, of Health uh, met yesterday, uh, and Kathleen Toomey, who's been relatively quiet, she hasn't had a big public-facing uh, role in all of this, but uh, people like Carlos Del Rio assure me that she's been behind the scenes doing everything she can to give this state, uh, give state officials good advice on the virus. But Greg, yesterday Toomey got very emotional uh, in talking about what public, what what healthcare workers, hospital workers, and others are uh, facing. And Greg, we are seeing 
that there's been a crisis of care in, in uh, intensive care units. Uh, there are, we've got a shortage of uh, registered nurses. Uh, the hospitals are really suffering, Greg. Yeah, we hear a lot about how uh, the governor is spending more than $100 million in terms of financing more state-supported staff members. But the underlying issue is there's few people to hire these days, right? There's a, there's a severe nursing shortage, especially when it comes to intensive care units. Um, there's other staffing shortages right down to phlebotomists and, and even janitorial staffers. Um, and, and that is why the governor has deployed, authorized as many as 2,500 Georgia National Guardsmen, not to go, you know, only a handful of them are medically trained. Most of these guardsmen will be out there assisting with traffic, front desk work. I mean, doing, doing some of the menial tasks so that nurses and other trained medical staffers don't have to do them. That paints the picture of just how dire the staffing shortage is, especially in rural parts of the state where there are fewer, there's fewer people to tap into the workforce. Sam, let's go to that final soundbite of Kathleen Toomey in which we do hear how emotional this subject has become uh, for her. Let's listen. I want to thank all of our community partners, physicians, hospitals, churches, community-based organizations, universities, school systems, the business community, the agricultural community. But especially, I want to thank our public health team, county, district, and local. I cannot thank you enough for what you have done to protect our state in this once-in-a-lifetime crisis and what you will continue to do to protect our state. And you will do that because you are public health. Kathleen Toomey, Carlos, you know that Kathleen Toomey has reported that public health workers, um, people who are trying to, to give shots out in the community are being harassed and intimidated by anti-vaxxers. No, that's absolutely right. And I think that it's been, uh, you know, we had, at the beginning of this pandemic, we had uh, people were applauding and they were cheering for healthcare workers and bringing food to hospitals. Right now, there's there's protests outside hospitals. There's anger. There is uh, you know anger against healthcare workers, and many people are leaving the healthcare field as a result of that. And I think we need to really realize that this could have tremendous consequences, not just for COVID, but for many other diseases. I want to stress what 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 Greg said. Uh, you know, when there's a crisis, I tell people that you need three things, right? You need space, stuff, and staff. Space, you know, so hospitals can create more ICUs. We can put a tent outside. Stuff you can buy. You can buy ventilators. You can buy this. You can buy that. Staff is a real issue. And right now, the critical issue is staff. It's, it's nursing shortages. It's phlebotomists. It's respiratory therapists. It's exhausted physicians. And now it's frequently... Many people calling in, I mean, a little while ago, one faculty member called me in with Amber's problem saying, you know, my kid was just diagnosed with COVID. I can't leave my five-year-old at home. I mean, somebody in the school was diagnosed with COVID. The kid is at home in, in quarantine. I have to stay here. So somebody else has to, you know, be in the ICU covering my shift. And that is creating a lot of tension. So we are at a very difficult time in healthcare. And I think people don't realize that. And to me, What's really sort of it drives me insane is to see how we are in serious problem inside the hospitals, and yet I leave here and I go and I see people pulling, restaurants are full. It's, out there is like nothing is happening. It's like we're back to normal. And it's this dissonance that really is, is quite concerning. 
Okay, I'd love to run down some of the big questions that people have been asking. Amber, let me give you uh, the first crack at this one. Um, so I'm vaccinated. Why do I go? Why do I wear a mask at the supermarket? Why do I wear a mask if I want to go to see a play at the Alliance Theater? Uh, why should I bother with a mask if I'm protected from uh, COVID? Well, you know, the reality is that we all want a silver bullet solution, but we have a situation where our vaccines are incredibly powerful, but they are not 100 percent. Right. And so um, what we are seeing is that breakthrough infections can occur. They are uncommon, um, but they do happen. And we can't tell by looking at a person necessarily whether they're carrying the virus. And so for the benefit of our communities at this time, we do need everybody to be wearing their masks, even if they're fully vaccinated. Carlos, there are questions as to what kind of viral load a vaccinated person carries and whether or not I, as a vaccinated person, can spread COVID particularly easily. And there seems to be some, the research doesn't quite give us the answer to that, does it? You know, I think it does. I think it's pretty clear of two things. Number one, yes, you you may get infected if you're vaccinated, but your chance of getting infected are about eight to nine times lower than if you were unvaccinated. But also, while you may be able to transmit, the, the number of days that you're infectious and transmitting are a lot shorter if you're vaccinated than you're not vaccinated. So at the end of the day, I want to emphasize, most infections are still occurring among, vaccinated, among unvaccinated people, and most, uh, most uh, 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 transmissions are still coming from unvaccinated people. And I think that is a really important thing to to, to talk about yesterday at the at the at the uh, at the board of health meeting, uh, a very interesting slide was presented, and I want to just emphasize that because it really brings this to light when we look at those numbers. And when we look at those numbers, we see that in the state of Georgia, there are, you know, there are about 4.5 million people fully vaccinated. Among those 4.5 fully vaccinated, between January and September, there have been 40 thousand cases of laboratory confirmed COVID. That's 0.87%. There are also 6.1 million unvaccinated Georgias. And among those individuals, 702,000 cases of laboratory confirmed COVID have occurred. That's about 11.5%. So compare 11.5% to 0.8%. That is the difference. Yeah. Greg? Uh, this is more of like a Dear Abby question, so we'll call it Dear Amber. But uh, kind of advice, because <laughs> we're, we're, we're right in the middle of uh, the teeth of Jewish holidays. There's about to be a lot of family gatherings um, coming up with Christmas and, and, and New Year's. How, how do you, what's your advice on how to handle family events with relatives who are not vaccinated? Yeah, so um, we've gone through this too. We have aging grandparents um, and, you know, everybody in the family is fully vaccinated. Everybody who's eligible is, that is. And um, and so we've made a point of we are going to try to get together, but everybody's taking one of those rapid at-home tests before coming to the event. Um, because the very last thing we want to do is bring disease to our gathering along with the mashed potatoes, right? And so I think that um, you know, it just requires that we be smart. Um, and so we have the tools at this point um, to make that evidence-based decision. Um, and so I would encourage people to do that. Um, but I think also, you know, Georgia's great in terms of their, their fall and winter is usually pretty mild. Anything you can do to have your event outside or open the windows is just another level of protection that helps you to have that peace of mind as you're getting together. 
Um, I'd like to ask another question that is uh, on a lot of people's minds, Carlos. Um, I'll use myself as an example. I was fully vaccinated by uh, beginning of March, really, really late in, in February. I'm starting to worry about how long we this protection lasts, whether we're going to need boosters. And how do we know if we're still protected? Really, we don't, do we? Well, you know, there's several things, Bill, there. These vaccines were designed to protect you from severe disease, from hospitalization and death. They were not designed to protect you from infection. We realized that they did give you some protection from infection, but the protection from infection is not perfect. And these are not sterilizing vaccines. And I think that's the first point. So people are confusing several things. People say, well, I had a breakthrough case. Well, the breakthrough cases is unlikely because this is what vaccines do. They were still protecting you from getting to the hospital and dying. We are beginning to see internationally in some places and some here in the U.S. vaccinated people over the age of 60, 70 and getting hospitalized. And in those cases, I think that people who are over the age of 60, 65, and the FDA advisory committee will tell us Friday, need, probably need, I don't call it a, you know, it's a, third, it's a booster. It's an additional dose to boost their immune system. But do I think everybody needs that? that? My answer is no, because boosting those already vaccinated is going to do nothing to, to, to decrease the hospitalizations, to decrease transmission, to decrease cases. And that's why I tell people, the boost I need is for the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. That is what we need. And we need to emphasize that the most important part of the strategy in the Biden plan is vaccinating the unvaccinated, is not giving boosters to those already vaccinated. Greg? That's good advice because I have a lot of friends who are um, <laughs> getting unauthorized boosters right now because they think it gives them some sort of extra super bonus level of, of uh, protection. But look, uh, my, my, my next question goes to either one of you, but as we're getting back to as churches, synagogues, mosques are reopening um, and sometimes with no occupancy uh, limits, uh, what's your advice for those who want to go back to in-person worship but, but are worried about getting uh, getting exposed? Amber, I know you've got to leave us pretty soon, so why don't you take the first crack at that one? Sure. Um, you know, I've advised clergy members um, since the start of the pandemic, and, you know, I think they are just as nervous about this as anybody. I think that, um, you know, if, if that's a concern for you, then you've already sort of made your decision. I mean, trust your gut on this. Don't go to in-person worship in that case. Um, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have underlying medical conditions, um, and you're comfortable wearing a mask um, during worship, I, I think that we all have to consider our own personal spectrum of risk. But we know from the early days in the pandemic that singing, uh, chanting, those sorts of things are high-risk activities, especially in, in a clustered indoor environment. Um, so I just want people to understand that, you know, I, I fully support the desire and need to worship. Um, but we need to do so smartly. And so, you know, that take advantage of those at-home tests. Make sure that you're not bringing disease um, along with your handshake to people in the, in the congregation. Um, and I think that we can do some of these things. I, I just I regret that we have such an anti-science sentiment right now um, that we're just going to put our heads in the sand and pretend that this reality doesn't exist. All right, let's do this. Uh, Amber Schmidke, um, you um, told us uh, in advance that you have another uh, uh, appointment that you've got to get to. So first, we're going to let you go when we get to our break. But we appreciate your being here. And please come back 
in, you know, as we move forward and talk about this in the weeks and months to come. So thank you very much, Amber Schmidtke, for being here. Greg Bluestein, Carlos Del Rio, and I will continue in just a minute. The AJC's Greg Bluestein and Dr. Carlos Del Rio continue with us on Political Rewind. Um, Carlos, um, I think people who've heard you on the show before know that uh, in addition to your work at, at the Emory School of Medicine, you're an online doctor down at Grady Hospital. And um, so you see firsthand uh, just what the people you work with have to deal with with COVID cases down there. If I may, let me play another soundbite from Kathleen Toomey yesterday. Uh, Sam, it's the first one. And then I'll ask you to tell us, what is it like to be a doctor in a hospital where you're facing a COVID emergency, a crisis, whatever you want to call it? Here's Toomey. Public health workers are exhausted, just like hospital and other health workers. But I, I just don't think public health is, is visible to the public or even policymakers. And, and often because we're doing things that aren't necessarily valued, like telling people to be quarantined or telling people to be isolated or telling people to wear a mask, we're not only not valued, um, we're ridiculed, we're um, lambasted in social media, or as happened at, at several, uh, several of our testing sites booed and jeered to the point that our, our, our vaccination sites rather had to close. So, Carlos, we talked a bit about uh, Toomey's concerns about people who've been uh, harassed and intimidated when they're out there trying to give people shots. Beyond that, she talks about public health workers being exhausted and feeling that public health is just being ignored. Uh, talk about what it's like at Grady these days, if you don't mind. Well, you know, I think throughout uh, healthcare, people are also exhausted. They're exhausted about, about taking care of, of people uh, with COVID and other diseases, the hospitals are capacity, everybody's stretched. It's really hard to take care of people with COVID because, you know, you have to wear PPE, you have to do all these additional things. It's hard also because you can't have family members and visitors, and therefore, you know, the patients require more than just the medical support, but they also require the, the emotional support and the other support that is so important when you're sick. Uh, and, and quite frankly, you know, you start not when you're, when you're overstretched and you're working so hard, you feel like you're not doing a good job. And I think nothing is more frustrating than realizing that you're not able to perform at, 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 at the way you would like to perform, the way you would like to do things. I am particularly uh, concerned, you know, we talked about nurses, we talked about other people, but I'm particularly concerned about our medical residents. And, and I know that later today, uh, Rose Scott is going to have in her program, is going to talk about, about residents. And you know, residents are this young doctors already trained in medicine who are now getting their specialty training. And, and residents are really going through a really difficult time. There's a lot of stress. I was talking to one of the residents th this morning, and, and she was telling me how this past month was particularly difficult taking care of COVID patients because it was dealing not only with the disease, but also dealing with the anti-science component. Many of the people infected are people that don't believe in science, that don't believe in vaccines, that don't believe in COVID, and that she felt that she and the other members of the medical team were essentially being attacked and being, you know, by, by the family uh, for saying, you know, your grandmother has COVID and she's going to die and she's very sick because they didn't believe it. They thought this was a, uh, this was a, a, a lie. 
And, and that creates also a lot of, of tension. So the mental health of our, of our public health professionals and our medical professionals has to be a major priority. And all of those in medical education are really concerned about how we're going to come out of this and what's going to be the state of mind of, of, of this, uh, of physicians, uh, you know, advanced practice providers, all of those that are working on the front lines of taking care of patients. Doctor, I want to ask a follow-up on that, and this relates to a tweet you sent recently. It's that you talked to a group of mostly unvaccinated people. You realize their problem is not lack of information, but actually excess of misinformation, and it's really hard to counter that. So after you say that, how do we counter that? How do, how do you in the public health field, we in the media, listeners who want to inform their friends, relatives, neighbors who are not vaccinated, how do we counter the misinformation out there on social media, Facebook, wherever? You know, I think, I think it's just impossible. I think we continue giving information and giving credible information. But when you talk to individuals, you realize that, you know, you, you, you almost need to think when you talk to somebody one-on-one, is you need to ask them, where are you in the spectrum? Are you a one, I, I'm never going to get vaccinated? Or are you a seven or an eight that you're still in defense? And if you're still in defense and need additional information and you may make the decision, it may be worth spending time with you and talking to you. But if you're in that camp that says, I don't care what you tell me, I'm never going to get vaccinated, or I don't believe in what you're saying, or I don't trust those vaccines, and I'm never going to trust them, then I think we just, you know, we're just facing a, a huge problem. And, and the, the kind of misinformation that is out there is truly uh, uh, unbelievable. And, and people have, have just latch to it and, and continue to repeat it in ways that, that really is no way to counteract. For example, a very common piece of people is, you know, the vaccines will make you infertile. Uh, I even heard one yesterday about if somebody say you shouldn't get vaccinated when pregnant because then your unborn ch- your child, when your, your child is born, that child is not going to be able to have kids. They're going to be made sterile by this vaccine that you or some other received. You know, I mean, I can show you there's no studies saying that that's not the case. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But have we followed those kids for 20 years to see if they have children? Absolutely not. You know, it hasn't happened. So there's no piece of information that I can give you who's gonna, that's going to counteract that misinformation that you have. And that is the part that is really hard. Some of these myths are simply no way. There, I have no data to, to, to tell you that will counteract it. So, so it creates a, a very complicated situation. And that's why I think that that mandates and other strategies are going to make a difference because otherwise we're simply not going to reach the level of vaccination we need. And I want to emphasize that unless we get our country with 80 plus, 90 plus percent of people vaccinated, we are not going to be in a safe place that we're going to prevent another wave. As Bill was asking, will we have another wave? Well, we certainly could because we don't have the level of protection, the level of immunity we need to prevent another wave from happening. You know, Greg, um, This is where politics comes into play, obviously. Um, When uh, President Biden declared his vaccine mandate uh, for businesses with more than 100 employees, for all federal government workers, Republicans very quickly, including Governor Kemp, attacked him, um, uh, saying that this was government overreach. And and the the, the question becomes, Greg, um, there are those who say, if you, you know, you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. 
Biden puts the mandate in place, we'll see how companies respond. We're already hearing from places like the Business Roundtable that they have more questions and answers about what he really expects them to do. Um, but but there's also going to be backlash. Republicans say you're going to discourage people now who might be on the fence. Those people that Carlos Del Rio talks about as being maybe wavering one way or another, uh, if they don't like President Biden, this may tip them in the other direction. It's a real conundrum, Greg. Yeah, there's no easy answer, especially now that the vaccinations and, and mask minutes before that became so politicized, right? There was that serious sense of, of, of union, of, of camaraderie at the beginning of this pandemic where everyone was pulling in the same direction. And that is long since gone. Um, and, and look, you see it at conservative events where, where leaders used to not want to openly talk about the coronavirus. That was not one of the first things out of their mouths, right? Uh, and now it is, right? I, I was at an event on Monday where, where it was the framework, it was part of the bulk of, of governor's speech. We're talking about uh, people being fr- so frustrated with, with President Biden's mandates that there'll be an uprising, that there'll be backlash. Um, and he's not alone. You, you hear it from a series of, of Republican leaders talking about that. And that's, that does reflect the mood of a, of, of a segment of the conservative base in Georgia. And, uh, and it's got to be very concerning to, to public health experts who, like, like Dr. Duril, who know that hey, this is just going to end up with more cases in the hospital of unvaccinated people who are refusing to listen to science. Um, I'm going to have to take a break in a minute, a final break of the show. But, Carlos, I just got a, a note from a listener who asks this question. What about people who have had COVID and are still unvaccinated? Are they protected? This is a very important question. And I think increasingly there is good evidence that people that have had COVID have a reasonable level of protection. Now, it, it's a spectrum. There are some people that have had COVID that have very good protection, as good as vaccinated individuals. But there's about a third of people who had proven COVID who have little or no protection. I always put the example of a colleague of mine who had COVID and yet had no immune response as a result of it. Like he said to me, what was the point of getting COVID if I got, didn't get protection? So you need to, to realize that this is a wide spectrum of, of, of protection. My recommendation is that if you have had COVID, it, it is advisable to still get vaccinated. Uh, Shane Crotty and other immunologists have written a paper saying that, in fact, that what they call hybrid immunity, people who've been vaccinated, who have been had natural disease and get vaccinated, have the best protection ever. They have this, this additional protection. In Europe, if you've been had COVID and you get one dose of vaccine, you're considered fully vaccinated. And that could be a strategy that we should implement in our country because, you know, that will get us to a level of, of you, you will be able to vaccinate more people by offering that approach. Uh, I think that, that we need to understand more about natural immunity, but I think there's a, a, a significant level of protection and we need to follow the science. And the science is telling us that some people have very good protection and don't need necessarily uh, to be vaccinated. And that is why I and several others are beginning to say, well, you know, is it a vaccine card that you need or is it a, a blood test that you need? If we could do a blood test that showed that you have had immunity to COVID, I don't care if you got it through vaccine or through natural infection, you're protected. And that's how we prove immunity to diseases like hepatitis B or, 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 or chickenpox. As a hospital employee, as a physician, I'm required to show that I'm immune to hepatitis B and chickenpox. And I do, they do that in, hospital, in the hospital occupational uh, area 
by drawing blood and testing my blood. They don't trust me saying, oh, yeah, I've been vaccinated or I had the disease. They, they look at your blood test. So I, I think we need to evolve in that science, and I think we need to understand better. But my feeling is that we are, you know, learning more about natural immunity, and there are some very good things about natural immunity that we need to understand, but it's not perfect. All right. Um, thank you for that. Let's do this. Let's go get to our final break of the show, and we'll have a few minutes to continue our conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio and Greg Bluestein. Back in a moment. Greg Bluestein, quick side question here. Did you get those edits made in your book? I did. I pulled an all-nighter or two, good. but <laughs> the next round is back to me in a couple of weeks. It's very much hurry up and wait. All right. All right. We're all waiting for that book eagerly about the 2020 election in Georgia. Um, Dr. Del Rio, it, there was an interesting story in the national newspapers this morning about the fact that the Biden administration has now said that they are going to start um, controlling the use of monoclonal antibodies because they've been overused in certain states, the administration believes, in states like Georgia, Alabama, and others where there have been big breakthroughs, I mean, where there have been big infections uh, of COVID-19. And now they're saying uh, they've got to uh, uh, look at more carefully how we use the monoclonal antibody. I ask you about this if for one reason that we realize this is a very effective treatment for people who do have COVID-19, and that in and of itself is uh, great news, yes? Well, Bill, you know, I haven't read the article, but my biggest concern with monoclonal antibodies is not that they've been overused, but actually that they've been underused. And in fact, we should have used them much more effectively, much more earlier on, because not only are they effective in therapy, but they're also effective in prevention. If you've had a household and there's a high-risk exposure, and the person is unvaccinated, you can give monoclonals and prevent that person from getting infected. So I think we have not used them as effectively as we should and as rapidly as we should. There's a lot of logistical issues around it. But if we could get a, a real scale-up of monoclonals, and I will tell you, you know, Florida actually has done a great job of making monoclonal antibodies available to people. And, you know, yes, I wish they had done as good a job preventing disease. But if you got disease, it's a good way to prevent people from ending up ending up in the hospital and, and transmitting to others. So I think that rather than controlling the, the use, I would like to see ways to expand the use. Yeah, I, I apologize because I didn't make that clear enough. It, in fact, the administration would agree with you. Uh, they're just suggesting that because we've had such uh, major outbreaks in states like Alabama, Florida, Georgia, um, there aren't enough monoclonal antibodies to go around in other places. At least that's the administration's contention. Greg, you want to jump in before we run out of time? Yeah, doctor, look, we know that the governor is opposed to mask mandates, vaccine requirements. He's made that abundantly clear. But were he to ask you his advice, and I know a lot of uh, city and, and, and community leaders have, government leaders have, what would you tell him? What intermediary steps beyond those two mandate requirements, what intermediary steps would you push him to to, to consider? Well, you know, I, I mean, it's really hard to talk about about what to do uh, at a state level. But again, giving some local control and letting, you know, local epidemiology tell you what to do. 
I can tell you that, for example, in the city of Atlanta, we looked at different metrics. If you go to eight, you know, ATL Strong, you can see the, the dashboard. We have several metrics we're looking at. And depending on what our metrics are doing, you make decisions. And I think local control will be really important. I really think we need to emphasize that at school levels, you know, masking and, and vaccination will be a good way to keep our kids safe. And, I, you know, we're having outbreaks. The major outbreaks we're having right now in the states are related to schools. We need to make our schools safe. And making our schools safe and making our kids safe should not be a political issue. And to me, the biggest tragedy in this pandemic is how we have made, you know, a mask, a vaccine, a political and, quite frankly, a partisan issue when it shouldn't be. The life of humans should not be should not be up to political, uh, uh, you know, political discussions. Um, Carlos, just a few minutes ago, you talked about how we need to get up to, what, 80 percent plus in vaccinated uh, people uh, before we can feel assured that we all are protected uh, uh, from further outbreaks, I guess. But, you know, it's interesting. Herd immunity was the subject we heard all the time a year ago, six months ago. We really don't hear people talking as much about herd immunity uh, today. Uh, Is that because we're beginning to fear it's unattainable because of the fact that so many people won't get vaccinated? Why are we suddenly not having that conversation the way we used to? Uh, The virus has changed. Uh, The Delta virus, the level of transmission of the Delta virus makes reaching herd immunity really hard. The original virus was a different story. And I think a change in the virus is something that we need to emphasize that we're we're dealing with a a different enemy right now. And therefore, the strategy has to be different. And that's why right now, rather than talking about elimination, we need to talk about containment. We need to talk about how do we get this pandemic to become an endemic, to become a disease that, you know, we can live with and continue doing what we do. But we don't have our hospitals saturated. We don't have over a thousand people dying a day. We don't have the levels of transmission we're currently having. And that's why I think that a zero transmission goal is simply an unattainable goal. Uh, I got to ask you one more quick question before we run out of time. Uh, it's flu vaccine time. Can I get a flu vaccine and not worry about it? If I'm unvaccinated, want to get a COVID vaccine, can I also get a flu vaccine? The answer is yes. You can get both, and you can get both at the same time. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thank you for a really informative uh, hour. It was just, it's all, we're so grateful to you for your willingness to come on this show and help us better understand what we're dealing with. You have a terrific day out there. Greg Bluestein. thank you, as always, for you being with us. Uh, I'm going to be gone tomorrow. I'm taking the day to uh, reflect on life on Yom Kippur, but Donald Lowry will be here taking my place. Uh, so I'll be back on Friday. In the meantime, everybody, please take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you're inside. It's really a very easy thing to do when you're around a lot of other people. And if for some reason you haven't been vaccinated yet, Carlos Del Rio has good advice for you. Please go out and get a vaccine. Uh, we'll see you all soon. Have a great day.